Hello, everyone, and welcome to From Tip to Tail, a podcast dedicated to animal welfare. This podcast is sponsored by Cuddly. Cuddly is the only crowdfunding platform built specifically for animal welfare organizations worldwide. I'm Bridget. And I'm Sydney. We've spent years working with animal rescues and have seen such amazing innovation, strength, and heart. Having this personal connection with rescuers has made us more informed, grateful, and inspired. We hope by giving you an inside look, you will be too. Today, we're going to be speaking with John Daly, the co-founder and president of Soy Dog International, which is a worldwide nonprofit organization with a mission to improve the welfare of dogs and cats in Asia, to create a society without homeless animals, and to ultimately end animal cruelty. We've been such longtime fans of the Soy Dog team, and we really wanted to bring John on to discuss the beginnings of his foundation and the journey to where it is today. If you're a fan of international rescues, be sure to click that subscribe button to listen to similar stories. We are so excited to jump into this episode, so let's get started. Hi there, John. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and nice to meet you over the Zoom, whatever. It's good to speak to you. Yeah, I feel like it's how we're we're all meeting each other these days. No matter how close or far we are, it's it's all uh, just through a screen. So we're so excited to get into this with you. I mean, obviously, your organization is so well-known and you're doing so many amazing things. But rolling back the clock, I mean, super interested to learn just a little bit about your background, what brought you into animal welfare. Yeah, sure. I mean, in terms of animal welfare, really, this was the start of it. I mean, I'd done a little bit of volunteering when I was working in the UK for smaller organizations, but not a great deal. And what happened was my wife, my late wife and I, Jill, we moved out here. Well, first of all, we came here to get married. We were supposed to be married before, and we got married here in 1996. Fell in love with sort of Thailand and Phuket and came back each year on holiday. But one thing that struck us was the horrendous condition and state of the stray dogs. And each year we came, there seemed to be more and more of them. And they were all pitifully thin, often hairless and hanging everywhere you went with these dogs. And the condition was getting worse and nobody was doing anything about it. We decided we'd probably like to move out here when I retired. And I planned to take early retirement anyway when I would be about 55. As it happened, I got offered a great package by my company who were rebuilding the factories in China and one thing or another. So I was able to take early retirement, as was Jill, when I was 52. So we'd already got some land here and decided to move out and uh, live here permanently. And it was always our intention to do something to try and put back into the local society. And in our opinion, what needed doing more than anything was something about the stray dog problem, because it was totally out of control and literally nobody was doing anything much about it. A few foreigners were feeding dogs and there was, there was a vet here who had been trying to do a bit of sterilization, but that was about it. So we moved out here and literally within oh, a month or two of moving out back in 2003, I met a Dutch expatriate, Margot, who had also just retired to Phuket. And she had started actually Soy Dog in Bangkok, in the area where she lived, and literally just at her own expense, taking dogs from the estate where she lived to the local vet. She moved down to Phuket and was sort of starting to do the same thing here and asked for some help with getting some dogs from a beach. 
I met her and decided that it would make sense to work with her because we had the same beliefs in how to solve the problem, which was through large-scale sterilization. Now, that's how it sort of literally started. I mean, if you want to go on to how it sort of grew from there, I'm happy to do so, but that's literally how it started. So it started in a very small way. There were just Margot, Jill, and myself, and literally it was at our own expense in those days, mostly. And we used to get volunteer vets from overseas who uh, would come and uh, do the sterilization. We would be the dog catchers and the nurses, unless we had some nurses coming as well. So we would do all the anesthetic and the treatment and everything else. And when we had no vets, we would take some dogs to one or two of the local vets, there weren't many here then, who were sympathetic and would charge a sort of a low cost just to sterilize dogs and also to treat dogs that were badly injured that we came across. That's how it started in 2003. And if you'd asked me, would it be where we are today? And I said, you're crazy. But I mean, yeah. So we planned, we came here to retire. We did plan to do some sort of take up golf. And I was, had always been doing scuba diving when we came on holiday. And since 2003, I've had one half-day scuba dive in 2004, and we never managed to swing a golf club. And to be honest, uh, neither of us have probably ever worked as hard in our lives as when we retired. And, you know, that's just a fact, but that's what, yeah, the problem uh, brought upon us. So the rescues we work with are mostly one and two person operations and a lot of, a lot of times. So I think it's really inspiring that it's like, hey, even the largest organizations, they start with these couple of people spending their own money <laughs> and kind of meeting together with, with other like-minded people. Um, and that's how any group who is really passionate and going to do some really large-scale work, that's how it all starts. It is. And I think it's great. I mean, there's, so, there's an awful lot of people, you know, there's been people in Thailand, mainly foreigners who sort of started off. The problem is, of course, is that if it's down to one person or one or two people, if something happens to that person or they've had enough, then it just it folds, it collapses. And that's really why we've sort of, over the years, Soy Dog has built. And it really, you know, I mean, Jill passed away in 2017. And, you know, I'm no spring chicken and I've had cancer myself and whatever, so I could go any time now. But the reality is Soy Dog will now continue. That's been one of the things that we, certainly in the last few years, we, uh, we focused on. Your dog has just parked and set mine up, but we won't talk about that. Oi, shush, shush. But I think what it shows is, is that really anybody can make a difference if you're determined to do so. You have to have the willpower, and anybody who thinks they can come into dog welfare and just sort of do a little bit here and there forget it if you want to make a difference it will take over your life and literally you will end up devoting your entire life to it if you want to make you know that's if you want to push forward and sort of grow it it's just it just happens and there's also luck involved don't be wrong there's a certain amount of luck involved it sounds awful to say but out of something bad something good can happen and in I mean, two things happened, obviously, in 2004. Jill lost both her lower legs from uh, saving a dog from a, in a flooded water buffalo field that she darted. She went in to get it because it ran into this field and would have drowned. And this field was sort of 
muddy water and she contacted rare form of septicemia. This was in uh, the end of September in 2004. I was told she had a very slight chance of survival. She was medevaced to be medevaced to Bangkok and told her she did survive, she'd probably lose her arms and legs. She lost the lower legs, but she managed to hold on to her arms and um, survived. So that was the first thing. And then just literally three days after she came out of hospital, she was determined to come home for Christmas. Um, the day after Christmas, of course, the Asian tsunami struck, and that killed her best friend in Phuket. And um, literally we were working around the clock for... Uh, Oh, months afterwards, we had, but it did bring a lot of volunteer vets over because of the publicity of the tsunami, obviously at the time, and it did in effect put Bring Soy Dog's name out from just being a local organisation, which we were, but did you know it did sort of start bringing support and a large international organisation at the time were called Whisper. They raised like a lot of these organisations do phenomenal amount of funds on the back of disasters, in particular tsunami. So consequently, they gave us a grant at that point, a two-year grant, they called it a tsunami recovery grant, and that enabled us to employ our first full-time vets and indeed dog captures. So it's where things sort of started to get going. To give you an idea, in the first sort of, well, year and a half from when we started, we managed to sterilize just over 1,400 dogs and some few cats. And although that was, you know, impressive, it's not going to make the difference when you're talking in terms of millions of stray dogs in Thailand. And certainly at that time, 60, 70,000 dogs just in Phuket province, where we were based. Now, if you fast forward to today, obviously, the moment we're sterilizing now, in fact, last month, was the highest month you know we keep increasing the more teams we're employing last month we alone we sterilized 14,100 animals just in March so it gives you an idea of the growth and the fact that now Phuket if you came to Phuket you'd be hard pressed to see dogs on the street during the day there's still community dogs and still stray dogs but the problem was more or less solved in Phuket Sadly, as I forecast many years ago, when we control the stray dog population here, you'll see an explosion in cats, which has happened. Because whatever you have a food source and a garbage situation, which we have here in Thailand generally, something is going to feed off it. And I did warn people many years ago, if we can control the cat population, which is also what we're trying to do here in Phuket, it makes it far harder to do, but in the then you will be, in effect, have a big problem with rats, mice, and snakes that feed off them. So you need to ask yourself, really, what you want. And a certain amount of stray dogs that are looked after by the local community, because Thais are very, you know, they appreciate some dogs and do look after stray dogs and feed them, providing they're not breeding uncontrollably, they're accepted here, and that works. You know, so what we've seen is a gradual reduction in the number of dogs here over the last 18 years as we've increased sterilizations and obviously dogs die off. We don't euthanize dogs, but that's what is, what's occurred and enabled us to expand our operations into other areas. So now we focus predominantly in Bangkok, but we also have teams in other provinces. It's a massive problem, but we're, we're getting there. So that's really 
trying to sort of get across how it's grown and why it's grown. That's such a heartbreaking story in so many ways. But really, I mean, the fact that you are where you are now, I mean, it just shows how dedicated you are. And I mean, you said it yourself, it's it's not something you can dabble in animal welfare if you're going to make a real difference. And clearly you have devoted your whole body and soul to it. Amazing. Yeah, but Jill really more, more than I, because bear in mind, living in a tropical climate with prosthetic legs is not easy. And I mean, literally in the first three, after the first three months with the, after the tsunami, and once she had her legs fitted and everything, I mean, she threw a wheelchair away. She refused to use her wheelchair, except if the legs were having to be modified or, yeah, she would take advantage of getting through immigration quickly at airports by using a wheelchair so she got wheeled. That was the only reason. But at the time, you know, it was up to her when she wanted to continue and there was absolutely no way she wasn't going to continue. And she was running mobile clinics and continuing, you know, as normal. But in a lot of pain, often, I mean, you know, my opinion, I mean, okay, personally, she's the bravest person I've ever met or known because she would be in pain every day because literally her legs... You have to wear these thick silicon liners over your stumps and then socks and then these plastic legs over the top. And every night she'd pull them off and there'd be blisters and sores and she'd slap blasters on them. And I'd hear her out sometimes as she pulled the legs off. But I'd say, look, take a break, go in your wheelchair. And she'd just glare at me. There was no way she was ever going to use that wheelchair. So, you know, she was very determined and nothing would stop her. So it's really down to her as well, because if she'd said, oh, I can't continue with this at that point, I'd have backed and probably soy dog would never have grown. Because Margot, sadly, she became ill a couple of years after we started and she had to retire, so to speak, from soy dog. And uh, she moved back to Bangkok and actually to the States eventually. Although she's back in Thailand now and still doing a bit. It's amazing to hear it. I mean, I think certainly even the most able-bodied person isn't turning their life around and and going to Thailand. But I mean, to be able to look at all these obstacles and and face them head on and and really triumph over them and grow through it too. I mean, that's so admirable. I mean, certainly it sounds like the bravest person I've ever heard of. And now Going into like a little bit of the technical areas of Soy Dog, can you go into maybe how you're registered as an organization, where you're located? Like, how, how does the organization itself function? Yeah, we're registered now in several countries, but all our work is in Asia. I mean, predominantly, I mean, the main thing we do is CNBR, you know, capture new to vaccinate release because um, and education. We do children's education in schools. I'm a firm believer that that is the only way that we're going to make a difference here. You will see, you know, the Thai authorities, they try different things. I mean, going back years ago from poisoning and shooting years ago to now building dog pounds where they take dogs off the street. None of this works. And it's a big battle for us to convince them that it doesn't work and that this is what the way to do it is what we're doing. And we've had a lot of people on in the Department of uh, Livestock and whatever who have responsibility for stray dogs in most places, but think exactly the same as we do. But 
it's they have to do what the politicians tell them to do, what their bosses tell them to do, which unfortunately often is not the right thing. So we're based in Thailand predominantly. We're also doing work, particularly with the dog meat trade in now in uh, Vietnam and Cambodia, focusing on. We've in the past also done some work in Korea and China. But I don't believe in spreading yourself too thinly. If you try and do a bit here and a bit there, you end up succeeding in doing nothing. And if you look at our mission statement, it started off in the early days to basically eliminate the stray dog problem in Phuket, which was one of 90-odd provinces in Thailand. Then it switched to Thailand. Then now, actually, it's if you look at our mission statement, is to see it eventually see a day of no more stray dogs anywhere, although we're focusing, our prime focus will be Asia. And that, of course, will be way past, you know, before we achieve that would be many, many years after I'm long gone. I mean, you know, probably you're gone as well, to, to say, before it totally we see an end to a stray dog problem everywhere. But you have to start somewhere, as I say, unless you take that first step up a mountain, you're never going to climb the mountain. So that's what we do, and I think we are making an impact here. So we're registered as a Thai foundation initially. That's what we did. In fact, initially, Margot registered it in in the Netherlands, because it, she was Dutch and it was easier to do that there, but there was no, and got some support from Holland in the early days. But since then, what I've done is we've now registered in the States, in Canada, in Australia, in the UK, and also Switzerland, if I missed anywhere, I don't think so, actively, you know, where we each have active boards. Now, the reason for that is twofold. It's basically or partly to help with obviously fundraising, but a part of that is to. So people understand, you know, a lot of people think, well, Thailand, where's that? And in effect, think in terms of there's a lot of scams in Asia. There are. There are scams in animal welfare around the world, believe me. And I know there are in Thailand. But the reality is, I think it helps to give a sense of security to potential donors that you are registered in their country, in the United States, that we are IRS 501c registered that we do have the platinum seal of approval from GuideStar and great nonprofits where they, you know, got their highest rating for all these sort of organizations because we're very transparent in what we do. And that is probably, that's the reason really to become registered in um, different countries. Now, Switzerland is a bit different. Switzerland, we set up, Jill and I, before she died, even going back some years, were determined to make sure that soy dog will continue long after we went. You know, that it's not, we see it so often where people start an organization and then they leave it because of the pressures involved, et cetera. And the organization dies with them. And we've had more than a few calls from other people asking us if we'll take over their organization and this sort of thing, which sadly we're not going to do. We help them, you know, if there's dogs in, uh, we will help them if we can, but not. We're not going to take over sort of a shelter here, then everywhere, because to be honest, although you know, we have a huge hospitals and shelter, that's you know, which is a necessity. I'll go into that later for you. But in reality, CMVR is an education, are our prime aim. So, and shelters do cost a lot of money to run, and they do can detract from that, you know, your prime aim, the prime aim of the organization. So that's the reason to set up in other countries. And we have active boards. They're independent, have to be legally. 
But their prime aim is basically to support the work of soy dog in Thailand. And sorry, I was talking about Switzerland. We didn't want a say. So we've got to this stage now where we've set up what is called Soy Dog International out of Switzerland. We have no staff there. We have a company there who look after our mail, we have a mailing address, and we have an international board of very skilled people and very dedicated people, as we do in every country. You know, the US has a board, the UK has a board, etc. But the purpose of that board is really to oversee the total work because. Thailand does have issues. Things change, laws change all the time. And although, you know, now, for example, a foreigner cannot be a signatory or for a Thai foundation unless they have a work permit in that country. I don't. I'm a, on a retirement visa. So what we didn't want to happen was made probably many, many years in the future have a Thai board with full control over soy dog who could go rogue and decide they want to I don't know, spend the money on something totally contrary to what Soy Dog Foundation believes. So by having an international board and the funds coming through there, Soy Dog Thailand, in effect, has to now apply for grants from Soy Dog International. It's not an issue. We have a very good Thai board. But it's there. It's how its structure is now set up to protect the organization in the future. So there's different levels. And it's the same with the UK board and the US board and the Canadian board. They are independent, but they are part of their, you know, it's in their structure and in their wording. It is to support the work of Soy Dog Foundation in Asia. In the future, that could change. We you know we're looking now at uh, supporting maybe something actually in the United States in California, where because of an organisation who is taking so many of our dogs. And rehoming them to help them and form a better, closer alliance with them. So things can change, but it all goes back down to supporting our work in Asia. I think what I'm hearing too, and I mean, this might be a little bit idealistic, but what I'm hearing is, I mean, with so many boards, I mean, certainly so many of our animal welfare groups will understand that sometimes it's a struggle, like selecting a board, working with a board. And for you to have several boards, it sounds to me like you made a real effort to put like your ego on the back burner so that your whole organization could be more of a legacy and could last. And you're really putting your own personal, I don't know, <laughs> your own person, I guess, in just in the, in the backseat. If you want to be involved in animal welfare, it's about the animals. It's not about you. And it comes to, Ego, I mean, say everybody has some ego, but I mean, you know, for me, it's about the animal. I'm not interested at all in anything on a personal basis. One of the things is for Vigil and I also, I mean, now we have, I mean, in Thailand now, we have just over 300 employees, you know, vets, nurses, all our mobile teams, you know, each one is 10 people. So we have now well, 10 this year, so that's 100 people, plus the shelter and everything else. But all our boards are volunteers. We have no paid members of boards. I've been, you know, Jill and I were volunteers from day one and we've never had a cent from Soy Dog. We have no high paid CEOs or anything else. Our CEO here in Thailand now, uh, Louise, she's originally from the UK. She's semi, so semi, she took to early retirement herself. And her partner, he's also now Soy Dog. They're both full time at Soy Dog. 
they do receive a salary, some salary. It's not a high salary because they're sort of, you know, Sam, uh, partner had to take, uh, you know, he didn't have a pension and Louise had a business, which she still has income coming from, but not, you know, it's, but they only take a salary for them to have, to be able to live okay in Thailand. It's not a big salary. So we don't have that sort of setup. And all our boards are totally volunteer, you know, voluntary. And um, we have no paid staff in any country outside of Thailand. We have one individual paid in Vietnam who is working on the dog meat trade for us in Vietnam and working with the government there. That's the only person outside of Thailand who is employed. That's amazing. I mean, and certainly for us, we've seen enough of what these volunteers and, and different individuals from animal welfare have done. And as far as I'm concerned, like they deserve a salary because they're taking on some of the hardest, most emotional things and dealing with things that other people don't want to deal with. But I think it's amazing. It's, it's very difficult. I mean, the fact is, though, if you're going to grow into a bigger organization, you do start to employ people. It's a fact of life because there aren't enough, you know, vets in Thailand can't volunteer. They need, you know, we don't. They're compared with sort of salaries you'd find in the West for vets, pretty low paid. But nevertheless, they uh, they do need a salary. So you have to start employing people. And that, of course, needs funds. So therefore, that's when you have to start doing some form of fundraising if you want to grow. It's just a, you know, fundraising, a lot of people is a dirty word, but it is a necessity of, of growth, to be honest. I was going to say, in, in terms of fundraising, because donations are so important. How has the last year been for you guys with, with the pandemic, with everything going on? Yeah, in terms of fundraising, I mean, I'll explain where we started. I say it was our own funds. I mean, everything. And I remember Animal People used to be a newspaper, sort of the charity's watchdog going back 18 years. And Merrick Clifton came over after the tsunami to, for a conference in Asia and came to visit us. And he actually said to me, you know, do you want to submit your accounts? Because a lot of people look at it. We we publish all the accounts of the major organizations in the US and many overseas. And a lot of trusts will donate, family trustings will use that to consider donating to. And I said, sure, yeah, I'll do that. And I sent him my accounts. And it, I got an email back from him saying, this is crazy. You're, you're showing 100% programs and nothing for fundraising or, or anything else. I said, well, that's true because I'm unpaid, Margaret's unpaid, Jill's unpaid. We have no staff at that point. You know, everybody's unpaid. I do the fundraising at night from my computer, what we're doing, you know, the, we are able to do. And he says, John, no one will ever, no organization will ever donate to you because they'll consider you unsustainable unless you are doing something like that. And I said, well, sorry, you know, you should put a value on your time or something like that. And I said, I'm not doing that. I said, okay, we'll just continue as we are. But he was right. If you're going to grow and you want people, people actually ask you, you know, they want to know how well established you are and if you are fundraising. Now, sorry, that was just how it started. Your question, though, was more this year in COVID. We've had a lot of problems with COVID. I mean, it's caused us, what's happened? Phuket is the whole economy of Phuket is based on tourism mm -hmm. and tourism is just dead. I mean, the place is, is like a ghost, you know, the tourist towns are like ghost cities. And consequently, a lot of people, both foreigners who worked in the tourist industry and the hotels and Thais who come down to Phuket to work in industry, but come from the regions further north have left. 
And that has gone home. And a lot of them, sadly, have abandoned pets. They just left their dogs behind or cats behind. And also, a lot of the a lot of the volunteers on the island would get their food from hotels and restaurants to have food to feed the dogs. So you had a food source also dry up. So on that side of things, what happened was we had this sudden increase in dogs on the streets. Many of them, no idea how to survive on the streets because they've been pets, puppies and kittens, and also shortage of food. So the first thing we have to do with order huge amounts of food to distribute to volunteers to maintain these dogs. And then over the last year, we've had to build, I call them runs, by a run, barium is a bit different than in the West where you'll have individual kennels for each dog or maybe two dogs. Because the climate here, we have more larger kennels. We do have individual ones as well for dogs that need it. But each one, each run will have is built for hold about 25 dogs. So we've had to build New runs, we've had to build on literally every piece of land we have. Now we've had to buy more land for the future because we've no more space to build on the current shelter. So that's sort of the impact it's had. Also, which I know is not your question probably coming up regarding adoptions. Yep. <laughs> a lot of our dogs do go overseas and a lot would go to partner rescues in the state. Now, we'd have a lot of flight volunteers. So member of our US board, she's had unlimited air miles who would finance through air miles those people's flights. And it would cost very little to send the dogs as accompanied baggage to the States or Canada, where we have partner rescues, and also to private adopters in those countries and to Europe and the UK. So that sort of dried up. So we weren't getting dogs out. Very few dogs were going out. So that was also a major issue. But in terms, so we had, you know, obviously appeals going out to help try and help us with this new buildings of dogs we had, you know, for shelt runs and everything else we had to do. And I have to say our, our supporters have been amazing. I mean, we've not had to, I'm proud to say, not had to close our doors to any animal in need. And that's down, not to us, that's down to our supporters because we can only do, like any charity, as much fact of life as much as the funds you raise you know if we had billions of dollars coming in yeah we could be sterilizing every dog in thailand in a probably in a couple of years providing we could get that many vets and be able to offer vets fancy salaries to come from other countries but that's not going to happen but the reality is you can only do as much as the funds you raise so we're totally you know reliant on our donors and they've been you know, responded this year. And we've also had a, you know, one or two donors who've been particularly concerned about getting dogs to new homes, have offered uh, matching big grants to actually us, to enable us to send some dogs now by cargo. So dogs who've been sat waiting to get to their new homes. You know, we don't charge for adoptions, but we do expect the adopters to cover the cost, you know, private adopters. And consequently, now, if that's a few hundred dollars, you know, with uh, by traveling as a company baggage and needing the cape, you know, for the crate and everything else, that's affordable. But when you're talking, when you add a zero onto that, because the cost of cargo, for most people it isn't. But we've had some, again, people wanted to make to try and help dogs get out. So we've been able to get about 100 dogs out. Normally we adopt in a year, round about 
seven to 800 dogs, and that would sort of balances the dogs coming in. But because of COVID, we've had a large number of dogs coming in and a lot less going out. We do have, have now record numbers of local adoptions. By local, I mean Thailand as a whole. But generally speaking, Thais want puppies and kittens, which is fine. So the puppies have come in. We've been able to find homes for majority of, and also kittens that come in. But um, older dogs generally not easy to adopt in Thailand. Few people have taken, um, you know, particularly foreigners here have taken older dogs. But mature dogs generally they don't want. So they generally the only way we can get those rehomed is is overseas. So that's really the, what's happened. And I mean, yeah, financially, okay. You know, in terms of 2020 has been a record year in terms of animals sterilized, in dogs reached, in dogs treated, in cats treated, you name it. Everything has been a, a record. And that includes funds raised. You know, we actually, it's been uh, financially, we've been okay this year, happy to say. Whether that will continue, we have to see, because people respond generally to an immediate disaster. I'm expecting this year to actually probably be more difficult, because although there's talk of opening borders and one thing and another, I'll believe it when I see it, and I don't expect to see return to normal in tourism. I don't think the authorities do here, probably until 2023, you know, there'll be a gradual, you know, improvement. but. It's going to take a long time before things return to normal. Absolutely. Yeah. I I know they're saying there are they're already seeing some like aftershocks of like humanitarian and all sorts of things that they expect to be the theme of 2021, um, unfortunately. Yeah, I think it will be. I think there'll be a lot more problems before we see an end to this, if we ever see an end to it. I mean, uh, sadly, I think that could we could be seeing most of the major viruses of the last sort of decade or so, you know, further going from, you know, SARS, Ebola, even AIDS, and now to uh, COVID, they're all being linked to, you know, zoonotic diseases that stem from animals. And that's because of the way the human race is treating animals generally and the intensity of farming and wildlife now, certainly in Asia, being killed for food and everything is having an impact. And I think we was COVID-19 is not going to be the last of them. You know, I think we'll be seeing more, but this is, unless we change our ways, then I don't see that. Sadly, being, I'm a bit, a bit pessimistic here, but I'm also a realist. I don't see enough change coming. Right. Soon enough. Yeah. And I know so many of the groups we work with, I mean, a lot of them are just beginning to, to see some like greenery with new growth and are trying to establish themselves in footing and I mean, there does seem to be quite a few challenges ahead of them. Um, so I know you you mentioned that you feel like there are some certain things that supported your growth. I'm wondering if you can touch on those a little bit. Let's say we do what's written on the packet. You know, we do what we say and we, pro- we can prove that. You know, and the fact that people see that we are making a difference. I think obviously the vast majority of our donors have never been to Phuket, but they can read about it. You know, we do have. Sadly, that's another thing that's been heavily impacted, of course. Normally, we would have, at any one time, probably 40, 50 volunteers at the um, at, at Soy Dog, at the main shelter, the main centre. 
who come for to socialize, walk dogs, whatever. And a lot of them, you know, they leave reviews on TripAdvisor and everything. And actual fact, if you look at TripAdvisor for Phuket of things to do, you've got to search for it a bit, but you'll find we're up there at sort of the number one thing to do in Phuket or after things like beaches, generally beaches or scuba diving or this sort of thing. And that's um, because people, so people can find out that we are what we say we are. We do what we say we do. And I think, yeah, I think that's probably has made a difference. There's also, though, I mean, you mentioned on fundraising. I mean, as I say, I don't particularly like fundraising. We do, I mean, if you say with Lux involved as well, we have a volunteer, American guy who lives in Australia, who's actually in business. He wasn't in fundraising at all. I mean, he'd been in business and was sort of semi-retired. And he came over to, to actually do some climbing in Thailand. He came to visit us. He'd made a donation. He came to visit Shelter back in about 2000, and, what was it, nine, I think, 2010. And was sort of blown away by what he saw and what we were doing and decided to try and see if he could raise some funds for us. And he actually sort of was the first person almost to, to see the benefit of Facebook in terms of fundraising. And that is really how, you know, we don't, we don't do things like sending mailings out and sending people gifts to, you know, I know it, those things work and phoning people up. I don't, you know, we don't do that sort of thing. But we do do Facebook um, and advertising on Facebook is where most of our fundraising happens. And so he was sort of, it's a lot harder these days to do, I have to say. You know, in the early days, it, it was a lot better, whereas Facebook, Facebook, of course, are there to make money and they don't make it. So they want you to pay them for you to advertise. And the old days when you could you could put out a message on your Facebook page and it was spread to millions of people have long gone. That doesn't happen anymore. So we do do, you know, we do do fundraising and that's really, you know, but we're very upfront about what we do. And you'll see on our, you know, we publish all our accounts and everything. It's there for everybody to see. But we also, I think, there's a lot of people actually hide a lot of their, their fundraising spent expenditure under funny titles and different things and whatever, and they put it down for this, that, and the other. We don't do that. We show exactly what is spent on fundraising, exactly what's spent on programs, and that's it. And we spend more on programs than I think the vast majority of, certainly more than any what I would call, I mean, we're not a huge foundation by any stretch of the imagination, you know, compared with the big ones in, you know, in Europe and States and whatever. We're still quite small in the terms of those. I mean, in terms of Asia now and Thailand, yes, we've grown substantially. And certainly we do, you know, without wanting to sound bragging, we now actually sterilize more animals, far more animals treat than any organization anywhere in the world. You know, so... And that's at the size we are now. So, and, and I think it's that reason that people see what we're doing with the funds we raise that encourage people to continue to donate to us. And we've been seeing more sort of like family trusts and larger, you know, larger donors, but we're still totally reliant on the huge army of sort of small donors who regularly donate to us each month, you know, thousands of small donors. That is who we rely on and that's who that's the reason we can do as much work as we do yeah i mean that's such an important point i think there are so many organizations out there who are looking for that 
that one like monopoly man that's going to be donating this large giant check to them. But I love what you're saying is like, what's really helped you be as established as you are. And I mean, to avoid some some level of risk, I think too, is like all these smaller donors, because if you have a few drop off and a few that are added, it feels like a lot less heavy than if you have a large donor who suddenly d- disappears. Yes. Leonard, who's still, because he's, he's not, you know, get what I say here, but Leonard's not particularly interested in the major donor side. You know, that can be a one-off great or whatever. You know, we apply, we apply for grants when we build, you know, a new hospital or whatever. We'll apply to grants from, but as far as Leonard's concerned, and I totally agree with him, it's the, you know, the large, you know, the thousands of small donors, uh, and I say small donors, small donors who are donating each month. And when you donate, you know, $10, $20 a month over a period of time, you become a major donor. You know, they're our lifeblood. And those are the people who we can't do without. And that is really, yeah, I mean, I was advising anybody, this is, it's, it's not easy. There's no, you can't wave a magic wand. And it's, again, raising donations is hard work. And I mean, over the last years, I mean, in the early days, I was, all hands-on, totally, feeding dogs, working at mobile clinics and whatever. As we sort of grew, my the time I could spend on that shrank. And as much as I, that's what I much rather do, I'm forced to spend more and more time of my time actually on this thing, you know, because I'm communicating with people. Because if you don't communicate with people, I mean, it is, I used to thank personally every donor. I can't do that now. But, I mean, we do. You know, I like to think that our donors are they're well communicated with and they're thanked and that they know they're appreciated. And that's what you've got to do. And you've got to take time out to do that. To do that, then you've got to have other volunteers, of course, to do the hands-on work. And Jill, nearly years, even after she lost her legs, she was, you know, we had one mobile team in those days and she was managing that and working, coming in late at night. From, they'd been working in the south of Phuket or whatever and doing that every day, you know, whereas I was focusing more on raising the funds to, to continue and to grow the work. That's just how it is. These days, because we're very short of volunteers and we've got now more people who can do it, you know, I'm enjoying actually going up to the shelter. I'm, you know, I'm able to go two or three mornings a week just to walk dogs, you know, because we don't have the volunteers walking them. So we I'm a volunteer now myself walking dogs, which I love doing because you're actually hands-on with them. Um, but it's, so it's good to get back to that, to be able to get back to that. Yeah. I mean, I can only imagine. I mean, this has been so insightful and I'm sure it's going to be very inspiring for just so many people, especially I feel like there is this emotional toll that this work does take on so many people and especially founders when they feel like if they do take a sick day, it feels like the end of the world in a lot of ways because it puts a hold on intake. It it makes it so you, people, your volunteers can't reach out to you. So, I mean, I, I'm wondering on some level, how are you as optimistic as you are? <laughs> I mean, I know you said you're pessimistic, but... I actually always look at the... I tend to, I tend to be pessimistic. I look at the sort of worst case scenario and then I don't... Whereas Jill was totally opposite she used to 
say to me, stop coming with those negative waves, you know, because she was very positive in us. And I, whereas I tend to write, if it doesn't work out, you know, somebody contacts us or something and talks about making a major donation. I don't believe it until it happens. You know, then I'm not, okay, you are disappointed, but, you know, I try to make myself out to be not disappointed if it doesn't happen. Um, just to just to come on, but in terms of sort of being staying positive, what I would say, though, you just mentioned something there, and it's probably important for people, if you've got people, you know, a lot of your viewers are in animal welfare themselves, there's a condition known as founder syndrome, and you have to be very careful not to fall into that. And that is where founders tend to find it difficult to let go. And I find that, um, you know, Jill found that, but it's something you have to be, you have to start being able to put your trust into other people, um, encouraging other people. As I say, to me, it goes in important. I am now trying to get, you know, you see videos now we put out, they're always made now. Louise is doing them, one thing or another, and I, that's great. You know, I want other people to do it. I don't want people to think in terms of soy dog and me. I want them to think of soy dog, okay? And it doesn't matter who's at the helm of soy dog, you know, it continues. And that's the danger with founder syndrome, that you're not prepared to let go. And then if something does happen to you, it just all falls apart. So it's important that you... Put trust in volunteers and give them more responsibility. And if you can, step back and let people grow. And don't be sort of, you know, always trying to jump in and try and sort of let people make mistakes as well. Yeah, you can point out, but let them let them learn. Because people, if you've got volunteers or people working, they're there because they they want to help. They're dedicated people themselves. And so allow them to do that. So it's very important. Okay, and then when you say optimistic, right? How does it? Well, I think I never, I never expected. You know, if you'd asked me 18 years ago, would soy dog be where it is now? I'd said you're crazy. You know, no, wouldn't. So, and but a lot of things have happened. I mean, if you'd asked me back, you know, the dog meat trade in Thailand. If you'd asked me back in 2012, whatever, would you know, 13 when we sort of started on it in Thailand. Would the dog meat trade be ended in Thailand in my lifetime? I'd say you'd be joking, but I mean, we ended it by, you know, in 2014, it was to all intents and purposes ended in Thailand. And, you know, that, but again, there was some luck involved in that as well. And that's even, that's, look at there, actually, it was a military coup in Thailand, which, um, you know, daft as it sounds, that had an impact on it in, in bringing an animal, the Animal Welfare Act, which, you know, uh, we were involved in uh, Thailand's first animal welfare work. And so there are, you know, often you need a bit of luck or something to happen. And as I say, with the tsunami, I often say out of something bad, often something good can come. And let's hope that's the case with COVID. You know, we've seen cities in China now banning dog meat and dogs being recognised as companion animals and not as livestock still eating dogs in China, but nevertheless, it's how, you know, if something good comes out of it, and that's what we're focusing on in Vietnam at the moment, you know, trying to use COVID and the lessons learned, the horrendous conditions of the dog meat slaughter, dog slaughterhouses and lack of sanitation or any controls is going to lead, you know, we're trying to get from authorities not to clean it up, but just simply to end it. 
And that's uh, so there are where you know you can out of something bad, something can good can come, and that's always bear that in mind, you know. Absolutely, yeah. So, one of the things you've got to watch as well, I think we COVID though, and I'm very concerned about it, particularly in the West, in the States, and I mean, Canada, for example, at the moment, there is a shortage of dogs, you know, rescues are out, dogs no dogs. The demand for dogs has been huge. Same in the UK. In lockdown, people are wanting puppies and whatever. And the Dogs Trust in the UK, who are a big supporter of ours in, the, uh, in Bangkok, in a mobile program in Bangkok, they had a very famous tagline came out many years ago, a dog is for life, not just for Christmas. They came up with that. And it was an slogan they used, continue to use. And I actually said to them, are you going to have a dog is for life, not just for COVID? Because I'm concerned that when people go back to work or, you know, in lockdown at home, we could start to see an increase in abandoned dogs in, in Western countries where people have been ab- adopting them. So you've also got to be prepared for, you know, I say I'm optimistic. I'm also looking, I'm a realist. I'm also looking to see, well, what's the, what could be the bad side of this? What could be, you know, what's going to happen? It's, and I'm always looking for the future. It's like, for example, we have the opportunity to buy some more land and although we didn't need it at the time, this was last year, I could see the number of dogs I forecast how many would come in during the year. And I could see that we were going to run out of space. And therefore, even I hope we don't have to, we're building one run on there at the moment and then off-lead areas for the volunteers. I hope we'd have to build many more on it, you know, because in reality, what I want is for soy dog and especially the shelter and everything to be obsolete, you know, we want a debt where you don't need shelters. That's the objective. But at the same time, I'm realistic enough to realize that I can't see the situation changing much in time for another year. So we are going to be getting more dogs in, more dogs in than are going out. As I say, I'm determined not to have to say, sorry, we can't, can't bring any more dogs in when dogs need us because we get an awful lot of cruelty cases here as well as, um, you know, just basically disease problems and everything else. So we have a policy, obviously, any dog that's been a victim of cruelty or abuse or is unable for whatever reason to survive on the streets. And that includes discarded puppies. Sadly, not every owner has their dog sterilised and the lambs have puppies and then they'll just discard them in a rubber plantation or on the streets or in a temple or whatever. And these are tiny puppies and you can't, bring puppies into the shelter, foster them for rearing and whatever, and then say, right, okay, where did we get you from? Right, oh, that street, we put you back there. You know, you can't do it. Same as you can't do a dog, put a dog that's been a victim of cruelty or abuse back into that same situation after three weeks of treatment and getting them back to normal again. So you do, that's the reason we have a shelter. And the reason we have, and when we have the largest dedicated hospital in uh, Asia for dogs. We also have a cat hospital and another clinic in Bangkok is that we have so many treatment cases that it's just financially makes sense for us to actually treat them rather than going to having to pay commercial vets to treat them for us. So yeah, we, we only treat stray dogs and dogs belonging to people who are very poor people who clearly cannot afford veterinary, you know, to go to a private vet. We don't charge, you know, we don't take any paying customer. Yeah, even with 
poor people, you know, we asked to make a donation. If they only make 20 baht donation, which is less than a dollar for some treatment that's cost thousands of baht, okay, they've done what, they've made an effort and done what they can. Um, but we don't, you know, people have said, why don't you go into commercial and charge people to raise funds that way? And I know groups have done that, and I'm not opposed to it. But we simply don't have the space to do that, you know, because if we, I've seen it also where people have gone that way, and then all of a sudden they're not taking in the stray dogs because they're full of paying customers. And, you know, that's another danger which I've seen happen. I've seen it happen in Phuket um, another group. So we will not. We just, that's in our charter, you know, we will not do that. Also, it's not fair on the private vets. If so, if there's a person has a dog and they can afford to pay for the treatment, they should take it to a private vet. And sometimes we have to actually tell people, no, sorry, you need to take it to a vet. We never turn away a dog if it's an emergency, but then take care of the emergency and then tell the person to take it to a vet. So that's all we do, stray dogs and dogs who I mean, very, you know, migrant workers and this sort of thing who cannot afford to do treatment themselves. I think it's so important what you're saying is you're meeting your community where the needs are. And I mean, it's like around here too. I mean, there are so many rescue organizations and they're so overwhelmed with stray cruelty cases, so many other things that they say we won't take owner surrenders. So it it makes sense. It certainly does. And I know you keep going back to saying that it's, you, there's a little bit of luck involved, but certainly, I mean, the harder you work, the luckier you get. So, <laughs> yeah, it's probably true. In, yeah, there's some truth in that. I agree with you. You don't, if you sit back and wait for the lucky break, it isn't going to happen. You know, so, uh, yeah, you make, there's a saying, isn't it? You make your own luck. And there's probably some truth in that. So, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for talking with us. We hope to definitely circle back with you and maybe later in the year to see how things are going and to definitely get I mean I feel like there are so many things we didn't get to touch on that we'd love to hear your perspective on absolutely so it was just so lovely to meet you pleasure to meet you and I say if you want to do another chat another day maybe about the dog meat trade or something we haven't covered at all no problem just let me know okay and uh, good luck thank you We are so grateful John was able to join us for this conversation. He has so much wisdom, everything from the importance of small donations to doing what's written on the packet. It's so important and we're so grateful for everything he's given to this conversation and we're looking forward to having him back again, actually. So if you want to learn a little bit more about Soy Dog Foundation, you can check our show notes or our blog. As always, remember to rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast. And be sure to follow Cuddly on all social media accounts at We Love Cuddly. That's C U D D L Y. Thanks, guys.